0: I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. Welcome, welcome back to the show, everyone. I know I start every single episode with the exact same opener, but today's is a little bit different. It has a completely different feel to it, actually, because it's opening up the first episode of season three of A Little Perspective. I know, this deserves an applause. Thank you. So, I mean, a few notable things have changed with the first one being um, new equipment. I actually ordered new equipment on Amazon at the end of season two. And I never really got around to setting it up because it's kind of confusing and I was being a little bit lazy. So that's something that's really new. Um, I also have a new voice. Um, I think this is by far the most noticeable aspect of season three so far. It is not, it's not in a good way. This is not a happy thing for me. Um, I actually lost my voice partially the other day. I don't know what I'm battling right now. It may possibly be a throat infection. We don't know. Um, and I know the holiday season is supposed to be, you know, jolly or whatever, so I'm not sure why my throat is against me right now, but, you know, we're just gonna keep it going, hopefully nobody cares, that I sound like a frog right now, but we'll just keep going and hopefully it'll get better by episode two. Anyway, it's been a little over a month since I've worked on and recorded and edited an episode for the show, so it feels nice to be back, and quite a bit has happened within that four-week break that I haven't been recording episodes for you guys. First thing, and I think the most major, also the only one I'm really going to talk about, is college. I've applied to, I think, seven colleges now. I'm almost done. I only have a few more on my list. It's a pretty modest list. It's about ten schools. But yeah, I applied to college, which is huge for me because I'm a first-time, also, this is my only time, being a high school senior. So a lot of new things have happened within that whole process. Um, I've been doing pretty well navigating the entire college application process because I know, obviously, I have three sisters. I think I've mentioned this before. But the two older ones obviously went to college before me. So my parents and them, they're not unfamiliar with this whole thing. But to me, it has been pretty confusing and tedious. I think tedious is a really good way to describe it. I was actually talking to my friend about this at lunch the other day. And she was like, I think a good word to describe the college application process would be difficult. It's been difficult. It's been hard. And I was like, I think confusing perfectly encapsulates the entire process. Like there are so many forms and documents that I have no idea about that I have to turn in by like December 5th. So that's fun. But um, as I, you know, apply to more schools, I've also been applying to scholarships simultaneously. As an American, it's no surprise to me that school post-secondary school is really expensive within my country. Most Americans obviously can't afford to pay for out-of-state tuition costs out-of-pocket, so I've been trying to apply to as many scholarships as I can, you know, to help my family out because they're not going to pay for a private tuition out-of-pocket without any type of financial aid. So the whole scholarship process has been kind of new to me as well. I know scholarships are open to people, not even just high school seniors, but I obviously haven't really started. Actually, no, that's a lie. I applied for my first scholarship during my junior year but i mean i'm applying to a lot more now so it's been kind of it's been tedious again like that's a perfect word to describe this entire process so so far this experience of trying to attain scholarships just applying for them has been a little bit confusing but thanks to the help of social media honestly i found so many new scholarships and i remember the other day i was talking to my mom about this she was like you know like how's the scholarship application process going and i was saying it's good and i'm finding a lot of them on tiktok and she was like, TikTok, like you're finding scholarships for college on TikTok, like a social media platform. She probably thought I was joking in retrospect, like now that I'm looking back at that experience, but it really is crazy to think that on social media, which is often viewed as time-consuming and pointless, I was able to find and discover just so many new scholarships, which are obviously viewed as valuable by most people. There's this one TikToker in particular that I actually found the bulk of my scholarships, or the ones that I'm applying to, it's not like I possess them. Um, I found them through her. Her name, her her username is Growing With Gabby on TikTok. She's currently a senior at Princeton and she's won millions of dollars in scholarships. So, whatever advice she gives, I take and I see that it's valuable. I just believe everything that she says because she seems more than qualified to be giving that type of advice to high school seniors and prospective Princeton students. So, on that note, I found the Coca-Cola scholarship through her. And while I applied and did get rejected, my mom thought it was pretty cool that I was finding all of these opportunities, like scholarship ones, through social media. And so when he realized that some of these influencers, which... At growing with Gabby is one of them. Get paid to promote certain scholarships, products, or companies in general. It becomes really clear that social media is one huge business. And I talked about this in an episode that I did back in season one of a little perspective. I talked about um, influencer culture, and I didn't go very in depth about it all, but I did say that influencers are really like employees at the corporate level, and people that are co- like the consumers are the people actually digesting their content, people like me that like Growing With Gabby's videos. But all in all, the fact that I was able to find literal scholarships, legitimate ones, to college that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars through TikTok, I was able to apply to them through TikTok, It really does go to show that social media has the power to influence us as consumers, as prospective Princeton or Ivy League students. It has the power to influence us to do things that we probably wouldn't have done if it wasn't for seeing certain types of content on our For You pages or on our Instagram feeds. And, you know, so it really does show that. These influencers are working in businesses. TikTok is a business. Instagram, Snapchat, they're businesses. So this realization led me to create the topic for this episode, which will be centered around the impact of social media subcultures on things like mainstream media that we see through apps like TikTok, Snapchat, and Instagram. If you have no idea what a social media subculture is, this episode is for you. So keep listening. So social media subculture, that's a term that's constituted by two different main concept, should I say, with the first being social media and the second being subculture. I think most of the people listening, including, I mean me, this included me before I even researched for this episode, are more likely more familiar with subculture than social media. So for the sake of convenience, let's focus on that definition alone. So what even is subculture? Well, when you search it up on Google, which generates definitions that are taken from Oxford languages, trust that source if you want, you will find that a subculture is a cultural group within a larger culture, often having beliefs or interests at variance with those of the larger culture. Meaning those that exist under a particular subculture are people who are under this large umbrella, that are united by shared beliefs that don't really align with the beliefs held by the majority of people. The people that we'll find holding that umbrella, if that makes sense. I don't think that was a good analogy, but I'm going to explain again. To explain this concept in a way that is a little more digestible, I'm going to use an example of a completely fictional town that I'm making up as I speak. Um, I can't come up with a name, so we're just going to call this Town A. So let's say that Town A has 500,000 residents. And within this suburban town, 480,000 of the residents believe in climate change. So it's pretty progressive for the most part. Now of these 480,000 residents, 20,000 of them believe that climate change was actually caused by the release of the 2010 film Despeakable Me. So the 20,000 people living in this suburban town that believe in the Despeakable Me ex-climate change conspiracy represent a subculture that exists under a much larger culture. In this case, the much larger culture is one that is centered around a belief in climate change, which the Despicable Me conspiracy believers also believe in. They believe that climate change exists, but their beliefs are, they don't align completely, they don't align perfectly with the beliefs that are shared by the majority of the 480,000 residents living in Town A. And because of that, they represent a minority, a subculture. So to connect this back to the overarching topic of this episode, subcultures could include people that share similar religious beliefs, political beliefs, etc. It doesn't have to be environmental, and it doesn't have to be centered around Despicable Me or any other animated films. And because understanding what subculture is is really important to understand this episode as a whole, I wanted to read a little bit from an excerpt from a 1999 article that I found through the University of Rochester. This says, Subcultures have been broadly defined as social groups organized around shared interests and practices. The term subculture has been used to position specific social groups and the study of such groups in relation to various broader social formations designated by terms like community, the public, the masses, society, and culture. So when looking at this through a social media type lens, how does this relate to the online platforms that we use every day through the internet? If you think of a given subculture as a niche, it kind of eliminates all confusion that appears when trying to connect it to the world of social media. For example, if you're an avid TikTok user and you find that all of the content or the majority of the content on your view page is centered around Harry Styles, it would probably mean that you are a Harry Styles fan because that's the content that you like. And when you're looking at the TikTok algorithm, the content that appears on your for you page the most is directly related to the content that you like the most, that you engage the most, that you engage with the most, sorry. So if you see a lot of Harry Styles content on your for you page, you're likely a Harry Styles fan, and for that reason, that is your niche. The Harry Styles fandom is your subculture. And so that example alone really does bring up the fact that, for many people, their online identities are shaped by the subcultures that they participate in. I'm just going to use a quick example of my little sister, Nora, to demonstrate this fact. So she's a really huge Harry Styles fan. That's a pretty huge element of her personality. And so it directly translates to her For You page on TikTok. I've been on her phone, like on her TikTok, her TikTok profile, that's like a tongue twister, before, before. And almost all of the content on it is centered around Harry Styles, One Direction, and there's a little bit of Taylor Swift because she also loves Taylor Swift. So it makes sense that because she's such a fan of these artists, that's the content that's seen um, and showcased through her For You page on TikTok. And so for that reason... Her the subculture that she participates in on TikTok and even on like things like Snapchat and Instagram, those directly align with her identity as an internet user. She's made friends online that like the same things that she does, like that like Harry Styles or like One Direction, or like Taylor Swift. And for that reason, her online identity is shaped by the subcultures that she puts herself in, that she participates in. So subcultures aren't random. We exist within certain ones that obviously differ from person to person based off of our interests, and that really does bring up the argument that subcultures play a huge role in how we identify ourselves as people that use the internet every day. So now that I've established what a subculture even is, we can finally move the conversation into social media subcultures. And I think that one of the biggest examples that will help people kind of grasp the concept pretty easily is Black Twitter. Black Twitter is by far one of the most popular social media subcultures to exist to date, It has, I can't even tell you how many users it has, definitely in the millions, there's a lot of them. And these people, the people that are, you know, under the subculture, they share, they share pretty progressive beliefs, and they're champions of racial justice. I mean, they kind of use, you can look at it through the sense that um, black Twitter is a news outlet for a lot of people, for black users of the internet, because a lot of times the news delivered in mainstream media is biased, it can often... It often is full of convoluted opinions, and so people on black Twitter Kind of use themselves and they unite themselves as members of community that all believe in attaining racial justice. And the same can be said about people on Asian American Twitter, on feminist TikTok, on feminist Twitter. But when it comes to Black Twitter, that really is a focal point of their existence. And they use comedy, they use humor to cope with racial trauma, and they use it to kind of push forward positive messages about equality and equity. And for many internet users that exist within Black Twitter, they see this subculture as a community where they're able to gain insight from other people about like these racial issues and learn about news that's going on around like around their own communities in real life because the news that they're getting through these communities online isn't as biased as it would be on the news where I, as i said before opinions are often convoluted and many racist things can happen behind the scenes and i just wanted to direct everyone's attention to a study that was conducted in 2014 published by the media Insight Project. 75% of Black Americans said news media accurately reported on their communities only moderately or slightly slash not at all. So Black Twitter is actually a way for Black Americans to actually learn about their communities in a way that isn't biased. And you know, I, I think I've said this in the episode before, but oftentimes people will hear news or hear about certain topics from people that are not qualified to speak on them at all. For For many Black Americans, hearing about racial injustices from white people that haven't lived these experiences, it can often lead to very inaccurate reportings as 75% of the people who participated in that study believe that these issues were only reported moderately or not well at all, not in the slightest bit. So when you look at black Twitter, it's not only an internet subculture, or should I say a social media subculture, that exists to make people laugh because it is really funny, but it also exists to unite minority, a minority population through the world of social media which I think is really cool. I think another example of a really popular social media subculture would be feminist TikTok. And TikTok is, I think it's so different than other social media sites, because while there are like a wide variety or wide range of people that like kind of are placed at the forefront of these internet niches, because, you know, there's a ton of creators on Twitter, there's a ton of creators on Instagram, there's a ton of creators similarly on TikTok. But on TikTok, there's such, it's so much easier to become one of those leaders, and that's why there's so many of them. These regular people that have no qualifications, no offense to those people, but these regular internet users that are just like everyone else on the app are able to blow up so quickly and become leaders of these feminist TikTok movements or of black TikTok movements because they're relatable. And I think that in itself represents a focal aspect of feminist TikTok. It's relatable. A lot of times we see that the people or the leaders of feminist movements are like these super well-educated, oftentimes they're they're older women, and we see that they're, it's just like, you know, the older white woman, super educated, that's like, that's like kind of like the mold for being a leader of the feminist movement. But now we see that there are like 16-year-old girls that are just in high school that are just like every other person that are existing at the forefront of these feminist TikTok movements because they're relatable and a lot of teen users on the app can relate to them and feel that they're kind of seeing a bit of them in these people's experiences. So I was rambling. But on that note, I've already discussed the impact of Black Twitter. A similar impact can see here. And while obviously the impact doesn't relate to racial justice or trying to combat racial justice, should I say, on feminist? is TikTok people are trying to combat obviously misogyny sexism and they do that through making videos with each other that could be as short as 15 seconds on TikTok and maybe even shorter and so I just think it's really cool that these little niches or online communities and subcultures exist to unite people to kind of fight to, a, to kind of want to attain these like really huge goals because obviously we can't do these things on our own so when you see that these teenage girls have mobilized themselves to start this entire movement on TikTok and I see it on Twitter too through feminist twitter it's really it's a really commendable thing and i think that social media is so powerful for that that we have influencers and just normal teen girls normal people internet users that can lead these movements just by making vlogs on their phones there's one internet user i know her her name is sophia Giuse i don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name but she's also leader of book talk which is like the book lover niche on TikTok. And she'll literally make like two minute videos of her just ranting about a certain topic that bothers her. It could be about misogyny, like different aspects of misogyny. And she'll mobilize people on the app to want to do better. And the people in her comments will be like, I agree. And you know, the next thing you know, people are making similar videos. And now a group of people that weren't exposed to the horrors of misogyny are now aware of it. And now they're going to spend um, of the majority of their lives trying to combat it and so it's the small things like that that add up to like m- making an entire movement and for that i think things like feminist tiktok and black twitter there it's a really commendable thing to be a part of them for that reason but the year is currently 2021 and social media has been around for a little while now And on that note, social media subcultures are beginning to gain relevance and shape mainstream media as time progresses. Look at the rise of Olivia Rodrigo. In January, she was just another artist. Or should I say in December? She was just another artist who had, you know, a couple trending audios on TikTok. In January, she released a single... Millions, millions of streams, hundreds of millions of them, I think it surpassed a billion on Spotify, and now she's a Grammy-nominated singer, thanks to the power of the high school musical, the musical, the series, niche, or subculture of TikTok- feminist TikTok. You know, thanks to those little niches or subcultures of social media, she is able to rise to the top of the pop industry. Super influential. The same thing can be said about Jay Versace. He's one of the pioneers of Black Twitter, if you will. I know that he started off on Vine, but he started off making comedic videos. He speaks about racial injustice on Black Twitter, and now he's a Grammy-nominated producer. He's able to branch out and influence mainstream media. And obviously, becoming a Grammy-nominated singer, producer, being an influencer, influencer in itself, you're not you're not broke like you make money from having that occupation because the reality is that now if you generate consistent engagement, if you have a good following, a strong following on these little Internet, like online platforms, you can make a living off of it. A lot of people now quit their jobs, their traditional jobs, office jobs, etc., because now they're generating a following as influencers. They're being paid to promote certain products and companies in general, which allows me to circle back to the point that I made back at the beginning of this episode. Social media is one huge business, and the influencers that we see at the forefront of all of these little niches or subcultures on apps like Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat. They're all entrepreneurs in a way. I say this because they benefit financially from us watching their videos, liking their videos, liking their new posts, stuff like that. So I think that what people are now realizing is that social media really is, it can be considered an occupation, like posting content on there consistently can be considered a job because social media is one huge business where companies often pay influencers, the leaders of these online social media subcultures to promote their products. They get money for it. And so I think a lot of brands are picking up on this. And I don't think I know a lot of brands are picking up on this. And I wanted to actually read an excerpt from an article written by the Harvard Business Review because it perfectly encapsulates how social media has evolved from being a place where internet users can merely you know express themselves and through creativity stuff like that to where they can now make a living off of it, where they can generate money from it while they diminish the impact of branded content, crowd cultures grease the wheels for an alternative approach, cultural branding in it, a brand sets itself apart by promoting a new ideology that springs from the crowd. Chipotle did this successfully when it made two short films critiquing industrial food, tapping into a movement that began in the organic farming subculture and blew up into a mainstream concern on social media. Dove championed the other side of the divide, with campaigns that spoke to crowd culture concerns about unhealthy beauty standards for women. So through this excerpt, the term crowd culture is used in the place of social media subcultures, but the same point still stands. People that exist within social media subcultures are now becoming a lot more influential as it relates to mainstream media, to mainstream business, more specifically and more importantly. Instead of just existing on Twitter to make funny memes and jokes about racial injustices and to, you know, cope with their own racial trauma, people on black Twitter can now use their platforms and use their followings to generate funds to be donated to combating racial injustices around the country. Black creatives on Black Twitter are now being given a space to promote their works and to make money for it. Leaders of feminist TikTok and book TikTok are now able to promote and financially support their favorite artists and authors through social media, as well as being able to receive financial compensation for their videos that do well, that receive a lot more engagement. Realizing all of this has led me to formulate the question, do social media subcultures exist merely to give people online identities, or are they necessary tools in the shaping of mainstream business now? In the past, the entire concept of influencers or influencing online was just emerging. It was new. But now it has become a much more dominant aspect of social media. And I want to quote from a 2017 paper entitled The Influence of Social Media on Contemporary Subcultural Groups in China. The rise of social media leads the contemporary subcultures to a new stage. In the past, subcultures like hipsters and tomboys, as corny as those things sound, were united. The people that were in those subcultures were united by their shared styles, obviously. But now, these people are actually connected through online platforms, where they can gain They can gain money from just being a part of the subcultures and for being popular on these platforms online. For example, in the past, people that- I don't know if a hipster is someone who wears like Doc Martens, but for the sake of this episode and time constraints, we're just gonna say that hipsters in like 2012 wore Doc Martens a lot. So in 2012, wearing Doc Martens made you a hipster. You now participated in that internet subculture. Fast forward to 2021, you could receive a brand deal from Doc Martens. You can help them, you can support them financially, and also support yourself financially, just for existing as a hipster who wears Doc Martens in 2021 on TikTok or on Instagram. Brands are now taking advantage of the growing popularity of these little online niches of the internet, which definitely alludes to the growing influence of social media subcultures on mainstream media and on mainstream business. So, to answer the question of the episode, yes, social media subcultures initially existed to help people find online identities that shape their personalities, who they are as people. But they have since evolved into becoming tools to influence mainstream media and mainstream business. But wait, the episode is not done. Typically, I would end the episode here, do a little conclusion, tell you to follow a little perspective on all of its socials online, but. As season three represents new things, new online segments, I wanted to introduce the new Ask a Host segment, where every week I'll select a question from one listener to answer here on the air. Today's question comes from a 14 year old listener who asked me Are social media subcultures helping apps gain more traction and attention? I think that they are. As someone who downloaded Twitter solely to participate in Black Twitter, I think that the influence of social media subcultures is now has now become so great that it's leading people to download these apps to make accounts for these apps or online platforms just so that they could participate in a subculture. I wanted to be a part of a community online, so I downloaded Twitter so that I could participate in Black Twitter. It took me like two years to actually get to the Black Twitter side of that app, but I'm there now, and that's the reason why I won't delete it. So I would say yes with that being said you have officially reached the end of the first episode of season three of a little perspective thank you so much to all of the listeners who are obviously listening to this episode and thanks to everyone who sent me a question if you didn't get picked try sending a question again next week and maybe i'll answer it here on a little perspective thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next week this is gonna sound very repetitive but here on a little perspective